Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're excited to present a discussion with the Zone of Interest director, Jonathan Glazer, stars Christian Fredel and Sandra Huller, sound designer Johnny Byrne, and producer James Wilson, in conversation with NYFF artistic director, Dennis Lim. The Zone of Interest is an NYFF 61 main slate selection that is now playing in select theaters, courtesy of A24, and will expand in the coming weeks. In his chilling oblique study of evil, British director Jonathan Glazer situates the viewer at the center of frighteningly familiar banality. It's summer in the mid-1940s, and a German family merrily idles by a river. Father Rudolf Haas, played by Christian Fredel, and Mother Hedwig, played by Sandra Huller, tuck their kids in bed at night. They entertain family and guests in their vast backyard garden on the weekends. In the mornings, she oversees chores with her housekeepers and cooks. He goes to work as head commandant of Auschwitz concentration camp. Yet over the wall abutting their home, we can see smokestacks, and at night we hear screams and occasional gunshots. Loosely inspired by the 2014 novel of the same name by Martin Amos, Glazer has created a singular, unsettingly timeless representation of inhumanity with our capacity for indifference in the face of atrocity, filmed and edited with aptly cold precision and punctuated with an ominous score by Micah Levi. Film at Lincoln Center presents Desire, Expectations, the films of Edward Yang, a comprehensive retrospective honoring one of cinema's most celebrated and deeply missed surveyors of the human condition, beginning next Friday, December 22nd, with the support of Janus Films. The series will feature newly restored and rarely screened films from the pioneering filmmaker's profound body of work. Get tickets to Desire Expectations, the films of Edward Yang, now at filmlink.org slash Y-A-N-G. Now please enjoy the conversation with Jonathan Glazer and the cast and creative team of The Zone of Interest. I'm glad to say that we have members of the cast and crew with us today. Uh, please welcome first the film's sound designer, Johnny Byrne. Also, the producer of the film, James Wilson. We have uh, the two lead actors as well, Christian Friedel. And Sandra Huller. And of course, please welcome Jonathan Glazer. There's I think a lot of a lot to talk about with this film. I'm going to do my best um, in 20 minutes. Um, it's very clear, I think, that a lot of thought and a lot of research went into the making of this film. Um, and I would just love to hear from you, Jonathan, about how you arrived at the approach. Um, I think when it comes to historical atrocities, certainly when it comes to the Holocaust, these questions of what is and isn't, what is showable and what isn't showable, um, you know, they weigh heavily on, on, on any project. And 
it's the kind of film where I think every formal decision is also an ethical one. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, I'll try and gather my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, forgive me. It's because uh, the process of coming to those uh, decisions is, is a long one. And, sure. uh, you know, you cogitate for a long time on, on all of the options. And alongside um, my interest in the subject, long-standing interest in the subject, <clears throat> there was also obviously a, uh, a considerable sort of apprehension about actually taking it on. Mm -hmm. um, and so alongside a lot of early reading and research and and everything that came with that was, um, you know, um, I read uh, quite a lot about um, the ethics of uh, representation. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think for me, I, I, the reenactment of um, atrocity um, mm -hmm. was, was something which I wanted very, very de desperately to avoid. Um, so I didn't, I didn't want to, uh, for me, it didn't feel like uh, could, I could do that or that for me that it should be done. So that uh, so I, I arrived at um, this place where the sound, the soundscape, the kind of, um, well, going back a step actually, um, visiting uh, the camps for the first time and then visiting actually the Hoss uh, house and garden that you see in the film, which is a very accurate simulation of the, 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 the Hoss villa and the garden and the proximity to the camps is as you see it. Um, and the wall that abuts the camp is also the garden wall, as you've seen, which um, was one of the starkest images I've ever seen. Um, and I think that wall was the thing that started my, my, my journey of how to approach the film and, and understanding then that we had to stay on this side of it. Um, and in order to look at our similarities with the perpetrators, but nonetheless, um, the the uh, the victims the, the the prisoners were always they're out of sight in the film for sure but they were certainly never out of mind. Yeah. The, the film shares its title with uh, Martin Amis's book, but it, it's quite different from the book. Even though I think it, I'm wondering what what was it about the book that sparked something for you? I mean, what did you take from it? The the um, point, the perpetrator perspective, the, not the point of view or the the. Uh, yeah, the, the perpetrator, the, the Martin Amis wrote a, 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 the book, obviously, um, which was a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a deeply absorbing book for me, but it was also, uh, it, it led me to the actual, the same kind of source texts, primary texts that Martin Amis would have obviously read himself. Um, and in that, uh, I became, um, you know, fascinated by by the the real the, the real family and and through and so the, the book was very much a kind of um, um, a, a kernel a, a, a sort of um, a, a quite a you know there was something courageous I think in in the in the kind of way that he took that that on and yeah um, can you tell us a little bit about the I guess the production you built this house um, and I think there's something that I don't think I've really quite seen before in terms of how the, the interior scenes in this film um, have a, a, a particular quality of um, documentary or surveillance. Uh, and I think that has to do with how, how the house was built and also how you shot everything. So I'm just curious to hear from a production standpoint and also from the point of view of the actors what it was like um, to work in, in, in this way. 
Well, the house that we shot the film in that you see was a house that was standing, So, we, but we renovated it. It was a derelict house, and it was actually about 80 metres yards from the real house villa, exactly the same orientation. So we shot it there. Um, and the, the garden that you see and everything was all built by, by my uh, brilliant production designer, Chris Hoddy, um, from scratch, which are based on, um, you know, all of the kind of fragments of research that we found. So we, we pieced together, it was very much a sort of archeological dig for us in order to try and recreate that as closely as, and, and accurately as we could. Um, decision to shoot it the way we did really came from partly um, the fact that I was trying to, how do you, I wanted to make a film, but I didn't want to use the uh, trappings or, or tr tropes of film, not tropes, but the, the uh, it's very easy to uh, glamorize, you know, by death by, Cinema glamorizes it, can fetishize it. Certainly empowers the 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 the, uh, the, the people who 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 we're pointing our cameras at, and it was very important to me um, not to do that. So I was trying to find a way of filming them without using those uh, those uh, those tools. So there was no there was no film lighting at all used. Uh, there was no um, cameras when none of the cameras were operated in the house. They were all uh, either hidden or exposed, but not ap operated. Microphones were um, positioned around the house. So, so uh, as, as Sandra and Chris, I'm sure, will talk talk about, it was it was trying to create a, a, a reality for them, and then for us to actually retreat. So we we retreated from it. So we'd block the scene, we'd work out where the cameras went each and every day. Um, but the real time that's captured in each of those scenes could only be done through that because of the methods that we used. So, um, Sandra and Christian, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what it was like to inhabit that reality. Um, well, it's unlike anything that I've ever experienced before, where the setup gave us a lot of freedom in the acting, and at the same time a lot of responsibility, because only we could decide what we do in this house. Of course, we talked about it, but the the characters or the bodies that were there had to decide if they move or not and what pace they move um if they you know all these things were kind of our decision because we didn't cut the takes in between it was always a very long period of time of 10 minutes i think um that the the takes were were lasting and um at the same time the sense of surveillance also did something to us so the if you want to call it guilt, the guilt that happened, that, that is in that room and in that story and in these people was absolutely, um, we could absolutely feel that. Um, uh, unless the, the characters put that aside, of course, they don't feel so much, I think. And um, I enjoyed very much playing with Christian, obviously, and one of the strange things that happens when you know that the camera is rolling all the time and you don't know what they are filming actually, what part of your body or if it's a it's a wide shot or you know all these things, you have the same focus all of the time. It doesn't change because the camera is not turning around. So this sort of yeah focus that everybody had at the same moment was very um, interesting to me, and I enjoyed that very much. I enjoyed it too because it it's a luxury situation to have all the time in the world to create the situations, to create the characters, to find the truth. Um, and 
I would like to describe the shoot like like a search. We are searching for normality or for banality sometimes. And sometimes we shoot scenes simultaneously. For example, the scene with Rudolf and um, the Töpf guys who described the new chimney. And next uh, in the room was sitting Sandra with uh, with the girlfriends. And sometimes you hear your colleagues the same time and you shoot the scene simultaneously and you felt the reality we, we are searching for and um, with, without technical interruptions or something. And even in, in the scenes we shot outside, there were uh, cameras hidden in the ambush, and um, I had a lot of writing scenes. I really enjoyed um, in, to be in the nature and sometimes to feel it's real now. And um, yeah, that was a really great experience. Jonathan mentioned a certain, you know, initial apprehension about approaching the subject. I'm wondering if you did as well as actors about approaching these characters. I my English is limited. What was the word again? Um, Sorry. Apprehension. Apprehension. What is apprehension? <laughs> ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I was full of fear, and it never really left me. I have to say because this. The, the topic, that were, the sujet that we were talking about is very, um, I don't even find the word for that. It's very, how do you say that, delicate. It's, you know, you can make all sorts of mistakes. There are all sorts of traps in there. And also, uh, we as actors, uh, of course, tend to have certain, maybe consciously or unconsciously methods that maybe don't work at that moment so we have to find something else and really like serve the the project in a way and the idea of uh, showing this banality of life and the connection that it has with us without being empathetic with the characters so it was as you can tell a really complicated thing to do um yeah and this fear never went away and even now when we show the film to an audience it feels like it could be read in several ways and some people maybe don't understand what we do so yeah this podcast is proudly supported by netflix presenting the extraordinary film maestro Nominated for four Golden Globe Awards, including Best Motion Picture, Drama, Best Director and Actor, Bradley Cooper, and Best Actress, Carrie Mulligan. Cooper directs and stars as Leonard Bernstein in this epic love story that chronicles the lifelong relationship of the legendary conductor-composer and his actress-wife Felicia, played brilliantly by Carrie Mulligan. Brought to life through the acclaimed craftsmanship of its sound and cinematography, Leonard Bernstein prosthetic makeup designer Kazu Hiro undeniably transforms Cooper. Director Bradley Cooper conducts a masterful symphony, raves the rap. ABC News calls Maestro absolutely extraordinary. Consider Maestro. Christian. Yeah, um, for me, this experience, um, I'm still processing to shake, shake it out of my body and my mind, this character, because it was a long time, uh, almost two years and two Christmas with this beautiful haircut. And, um, <laughs> but for me, it was, it was, um, 
yeah, it, it was intense in a way. Sometimes you, the, the, the situation are normal, but there's something under the surface. And um, Jonathan said to me one key sentence uh, to create this character. If you speak the truth, then lie with your eyes. And if your eyes speak the truth, then lie with your mouth. And to keep all these thoughts inside of me. And that was a really intense cocktail for me in a time with this historical context, with the responsibility towards the victims, um, with the method, we, we, the shooting method. So, And I was really happy to, to have Sandra at my side as a colleague. We had some of the phone calls after the shooting days because sometimes we were unsure what we are doing here. It's, is it right? Is it wrong? We had a lot of discussions and we had a lot of conversations with Jonathan before the shooting. And this was the most important thing. Uh, we talked about the characters, the script, um, all these things. Um, and yeah, it was really intense. Um, James, maybe we can bring you into this uh, as well. And I'm, I'm curious uh, if you and Jonathan want to say a bit about the decision to shoot really at the site and why that was important and what challenges that might have posed. Um, I think it was uh, it was always a given. I, I don't. I think it was. Um, it was almost never even questioned that we would shoot the film. In, in Poland, where it happened, I think it's kind of film like you are anyway. You know, you would go to wherever the the story is set, the piece is set. You go and do it there. Um, there was a there was an exploration of different parts of Poland to possibly shoot it, and we had this idea of um, built, you, you spoke to it, build it, building the um, the house and the garden, um, and we did explore. But actually, we started when when John went out to visit in the years. You know, many years before we shot it, five, six, seven years, um, visiting the real Hoss House that is there that John described, and spending a lot of time at the at the museum and the memorial Auschwitz and in the town, and and then we travelled round Poland, and then I think we kind of fairly fluidly came to the realization that it did have to be um, there um, for all sorts of reasons to to feel it and to in some way to photograph it and to feel it. And we didn't really even know what that would be. Certainly when you go there, that proximity is what really strikes you. That walk from the garden gate to the SS command building is less than a, a, a minute and a half. Um, so so it, it, it was a given, really. It wasn't a debate. It sort of had to be there. Um, the challenges of that, um, again, um, it was a very organic process because we spent so long visiting and going back and forth and working with the people at the museum who, who were so generous and welcoming and um, to us. And uh, so the, uh, we, we were able to, 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 to be there. And then I suppose the challenges were the very um, practical ones, again, that John has spoken to, of, of, making, of making that house. I, I suppose the house and the garden, making it. Um, the time needed to do that to shoot one summer, the summer of 2021. Um, and Chris Hoddy's am his amazing work and his amazing team. I think it took about four. I think he did it in four months. He grew that garden from a from a scrappy heathland and the walls and the plants and everything. And he wanted longer. Um, so that was a 
that was a real practical challenge to work out how to do that, to, to, to construct the house, and then, of course, the camera system. So, uh, But we just went for it and did it and just followed followed the, John's vision for that. Um, but, yeah, those were the main things. Um, and Johnny, of course, I want to bring you into this. Um, I don't know if uh, people are aware, but this is Johnny's second film at the festival. He was also here last weekend for Poor Things. So thanks for being Been busy. Back. As busy as, as Sandra this, <laughs> at this festival. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Jonathan's already alluded to the importance of um, the soundscape and the sound design in this film. I wonder if both of you can talk about just conceptualizing and, and, and building it. Yeah, I think, um, well, obviously I've worked with John for many years, many decades, and um, we've developed a workflow, notably on the last film, that some of you may be too young to remember, Under the Skin. <laughs> but um, we, um, it really about understanding that um, to have truly immersive audio in, in film, you need to, um, it's not so much about crazy surround sound, it's about having credibility in the sound that you do use. So obviously, um, uh, research was where I began on the film, read the script, and um, we realized that we had to understand absolutely everything about um, what sounds you would have heard in that time period and how you would have heard them, the physicality, and that's from everything to do with the kind of nature of the place. and. Uh, through you know the planes and automobiles that would have been around at the time, but of course the machine of the camp, you know the, the sounds that would come from the workshop, and of course the crematoria and and the guards and the prisoners themselves, and and that involved a, a lot of research of um, reading witness testimony and understanding the things that happened there, and and going through a process of building a large library to um, to have a plethora of sound that we could use, and and the. The workflow was very much to, uh, we sort of divided it into film one and film two. Um, film one being the film that you see, and, and we had a very formal approach to pretty much completing that before we wanted to get to the point of saying, right, this is everything that we know, and this is everything that we see, and now let's add the sound from over the wall, basically. And um, which was right, because I think film two shouldn't inform film one if, if film one is to be ignoring film two. Um, so yeah, we we went through a process of of um, attenuating quite how much sound we needed, and um, it took many months. Right? How, how was your experience of that? We did work for a long time, of course. And um, when we first, when Johnny and I first talked about the project, um, and I came to see you, and we, I sort of introduced the idea to you. Um, uh, we talked, obviously, that probably a few months later, you then Johnny then sort of. You know, Johnny did his own research, of course, um, and produced a sort of uh, document of what we needed to uh, record, um, which was about the same length as my screenplay and about as expensive. At least, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But uh, that's how he started. In other words, he, Johnny's had a, a you know, a, 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 as he, an equally rigorous approach to it. And then really it's about gathering sounds. Johnny's sound team... Uh, Field recordings. A lot of what you hear there are field recordings. So we 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 think how what okay what, what might we hear and then where do we go and how do we go and record that? Where might that be? Mm. Um, so it's 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 all based on layers of uh, very carefully calibrated real sound. Um, 
draft after draft after draft after draft, just like the edit. It's a kind of, you know, until we found the form. Absolutely, yeah. Could you give us some examples of what you recorded and how? Yeah, for sure. Um, we uh, we would obviously plenty of nature sounds from around around the world, but but we've um, if you need the sound of people shouting, it's better to go and find where that happens naturally than to than to have people in a sound booth and and do it. Um, so yeah, we would go and find sources of. of men shouting at night, you yeah. know, maybe um, in towns late at night. And over a period of uh, a year and a half, we just built up a library of, of sounds that were appropriate. For, for the sounds are categorized just like the, the edit. You know, every frame we'd look at and every sound that Johnny recorded, we'd also listen to. So we'd have, it really was a, this, this, as he describes, a sort of the film you see and the film you hear. I mean, you Sorry. It is a very important decision for us as actors too that, all the soundscape that is very important for the film really wasn't there. Although Jonathan is somebody who's working in a very transparent way, so he told us what would be added in the end, which I'm very thankful for because also this can go otherwise. So it was easier for us to put it aside. Yeah. But yeah. I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned like how you thought about just the ethics of representation, and I think sound is also a form of representation and I'm just wondering how you approach that because it, clearly a lot of a lot of thought went into how to use sound with and against image in this film well I mean I, I what what Johnny's caution here and mine too is not to kind of unpick the 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 uh, the weave of that um, by sort of telling you exactly what is what um, so uh, you know, in that sense, it's sort of it's what you what you hear, what you feel from what you hear. Sound of, is interpretive, of course, in a way that images aren't. So, a lot of what you hear, a lot of the pictures that what you hear, the, the pictures in your mind are created by what you hear. So, again, the idea of not showing and not representing in images, but to but to hear and to feel through what you hear, based on the images that we all know um, from archive and documentary and even feature films fiction films of the same subject i think they are in they're, they're in one's mind when one sees this film um, to the point that perhaps you might feel like you have seen those images you have seen images of violence but in fact you you've only seen those in your mind we, we did find an interesting phenomena that i think spoke to that somewhat that um, when we played the film through from the beginning um, when we were near the end of mixing it it would work very well and, and everything was as we wanted it but if we came in one morning and started from say 30 minutes in it would all sound wrong and everything was too loud and we actually thought there was like a technical fault and you know there something wrong with it so we um yes yeah, which sort of spoke the idea that perhaps we were dialing things out as well so um i think that um we only have time for one more question so i'm just going to ask you to speak about something that i think is really important to the film it's I think it's crystallized in, in the ending of the film, but even before that, um, through how the film is shot and performed and everything, it feels very much like um, not... It doesn't have the trappings of a historical period piece. Um, it feels very much like it's unfolding in the present tense. Um, and that seems... It's interesting. I think the question of proximity is like such a big part of this film, the proximity of the camp and the house and also proximity of, of time seems to be like something you're really working with here. 
um, yeah, there was, <clears throat> I didn't want, to, I mean, there's been obviously hundreds of films made about this subject and um, some better than others, of course, but um, I, I, uh, I'm i sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. Just time. Sorry, give me a quick, because it was a present tense. Present tense, so sorry. Present tense. I'm, um, is um, the present tense of the film, everything had to serve that, really. We started, I didn't want to make a museum piece. I didn't feel like... Um, there was. I didn't want to make a film where we felt this kind of safe distance from these events. In other words, if we watch a film which is uh, clearly about a, uh, an event in history, this particular event in history, we can walk away from it feeling like, well, that's not us. We have no similarities with those perpetrators. Um, and I could never do that. I could never be that. And I'm, I remain safe at a safe distance from it. And we really wanted to um, upend that with this film. And so everything here is there in the service of that idea of how of the, our similarities to the perpetrators rather than our similarities with the victims. And um, so the, the the lenses, the choices, the sharpness of the film, the the the, um, the the vividness of it, and and its intent is is very much to feel that there is no distance. It's between now and then. There's no difference between now and then. Well, it's an incredible achievement, and congratulations and thank you to all of you. Thank you.